Now remember that that was the pattern for Israel for so long. Uh, we especially see it's highlighted in the book of Judges for us. God is faithful. He cares for his people. They follow along for a while. After a while they go, uh, gee, the God over there looks really cool. Maybe I'll go kind of worship him for a while. And they do, they do kind of both sides of the fence for a while. And before you know it, they're all over there with the pagan God. And judgment comes upon them, and they have to be crushed, and they come and repent, and God restores them, and it's a cycle that goes again and again and again. It seems like people forget the faithfulness of God. We would never do that, but just in case, there might be one or two of you, uh, we'll continue and, and study here. Now, the psalmist calls us to pay heed to the instruction of God's Word, and to pass that truth on to the next generation and the next generation, and the next generation, because we saw so often, again, in the Old Testament uh, people and, and in their lives, the first generation would get it and live it out because they would see the mighty works of the Lord, and the next generation would come along and they would hear the stories of these things from mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, and before you know it, the second or the third generation has fallen off into idolatry and has just pitched out the things of faith. Well, uh, but Scripture is very clear. Teach these things. Fix them in the minds of those who come after you. And that exhortation is given to us in the first eight verses here. And it's referring basically to the, from verses 9 to 64, it recounts a history of the northern kingdom. Now remember, after... Uh, Solomon's death, uh, the, the, the nation divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom included Jerusalem and, and the tribe of Judah, the northern kingdom, the other tribes, uh, and there's, there's a, a test to get into heaven, uh, and you have to remember two dates. The northern kingdom fell on what year? None of you are going. It's clear. <laughs> 722 B.C., the southern kingdom fell in... 586, at least one is going. Good. Okay? Uh, so verses 9 through 64 recount the history of the northern kingdom. It's not a pretty sight. Okay? It is just not a pretty picture. They fell into idolatry pretty quickly. Okay? Um, and, and, and repeatedly. They, they, they fell in and the Lord would work a little bit and they'd fall further and they'd work and they'd, they kept falling. They kept just not coming back up. Uh, eventually, and, and they, they did not carry out his, his law, they did not carry out his instructions, and, you know, God brought judgment upon them in the invasion of 722, and they ceased to be uh, a, a people there. They did not come back to him. The, the end of the psalm, which we're going to read together, so turn over a couple of pages, to, and we'll read verse 65 to the end, it's just a quick portion. This portion deals with the southern kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom held on a little bit longer than the northern kingdom did, about another 150 years or so. Um, and, but that's where the capital was, that's where the temple was, um, that was the, the, the promise was going through the tribe of Judah in the southern kingdom, and then one day they were confident that God would place on their throne a king for all eternity. And you see that fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So verse 65 to the end is the history of the southern kingdom. Then the Lord awoke as if from sleep like a warrior overcome by wine, and he drove his adversaries back. He put on them an everlasting reproach 
He also rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved, and he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs he brought him, to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. So as bad as, as 9 through 64 was, which you can read on your own, this is a good portion of it. That God uh, did not abandon them. Yes, he, he, he put them aside for a little bit, but that is the line for whom Jesus Christ has come. And the, the king that will sit on the throne of David for all eternity. So in this song, we go back to the first couple of verses. In this song, we are called to heed the instruction. Now, just remember, those who uh, refuse to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, okay? Oh, man, how often do we see that that, that, that happen, that we forget to learn the, the lessons of history? And I think, uh, to some extent, um, uh, whether this is just in, in this generation or the last 50 or so years, it seems like everything that happens now is so more important and relative than anything that has gone on before. Okay? Oh, it's just, th this is the worst that it's ever been. This is the best that it's ever been. Uh, you hear about people say, oh, our country is so divided. Like, it's never been divided this bad before. Well, there was that unpleasantness between the states a while back, right? <laughs> that was bad. That was the division. Okay? So we are called to remember history Remember what went on and to learn from it and to fill our minds and hearts with it. It's not simply to listen to these instructions themselves, but to listen to these instructions, learn from them, and pass them on. That is what this psalm is about. Look at verse 2. He says, I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. You've heard this before. Okay? Fix it in your minds. This is what has happened. I'm not going to conceal it from you. I'm going to lay it clearly before you. Um, because sometimes the lessons from history are not always self-evident. Sometimes they have to be uh, understood and examined and so the lesson can really jump out at us. So, here we go. Notice that this call to learn from, from history is, has two parts to it. Verses 1 through 4, and then verses 5 through 8. Uh, so in the early part, in verses 1 through 4, we have this little explanation. And then in verse 5 through 8, um, we have a, a, an explanation of what the law is for. So what the law is for. He's established a testimony. Um, he's appointed a law. So the fundamental reason the definition of law in this psalm is instruction. Okay? Let me tell you about the law of the Lord. Let me tell you about the instructions of the Lord. Uh, and this is not a civil law. This is not something that Congress passes or anything like that. This is a law from God, an instruction from God, and it's laid out for us as a testimony. So it's almost as if Asaph is testifying to what the Lord wants us to know, so that you can know it, so that it can fill your heart, and that you can live in accordance with it. 
And what's better is that the generation to come might know it as well. So there are, um, uh, most of verses 9 through 64 are negative. That, that's, that's really what it's about, is this negative thing. And so often, uh, in a law, we get the same type of thing. Um, the law calls us to do this, which is an instruction. And the consequence of not doing that is negative. So the law here calls us to obey the Lord, and here are the consequences from the northern kingdom as an example, a negative example. This is what happens when you don't follow what the Lord says. You know, here's a guardrail. There you are driving through the Alps, and here's a guardrail. And what's on the other side of the guardrail? Like, like a thousand feet down, and, and the guardrail says it's going to help you stay on the road. But what can you do with there? Here you are in a 6,000-pound car that can go 150 miles an hour. If I want to go over the edge, I certainly can, but there are consequences to go over, going over the edge. If you... Um, you know, uh, what, what, I'll give you another example. Here's... Uh, um, somebody comes before you with some drugs. Here's some crack, okay? Just your friends, your close friends. I want to give you some crack. And they say, here, take this. This, this is really good for you, but you know what? You've read it, you've been instructed by it, and, and the dangers have been laid clearly before you. If you take it, your body will be addicted to it. And, and have you ever seen the billboards from people? You know, they saw their teeth rotting and their skin just decaying away. And they look so terrible. This is what it will do for you. Now, you can go and do it if you want. But the consequences are clearly laid out. You've been instructed about the dangers. Here are the consequences. What will you do? What will you do? So, let me give you the positive things here that are a result from filling our minds and hearts with God's Word and remembering history. Okay, there are three positive things. The first one is that we are called to put our confidence in God. We put our confidence in the Lord. We have a personal trust in a living God, and this is our hope for life. It is our hope for all of our lives, our salvation, everything else in our lives rests upon our Heavenly Father. It is we're trusting in His wisdom, in his character, in his work, and in his promises to us. Okay? Not in our own. When we put our trust in our own, we will go off the edge. We'll go over the guardrail. I'll take the drug, whatever it is. When we don't trust in God, it leads us to despair. It leads us into idolatry and therefore destruction. The example, the northern kingdom. Reliance upon the temporal, temporal, temporal world around us um, is reliance upon things that can be taken away. Think about, about everything that the world provides for us. Think about everything around us. It can all be taken from us. It can all be taken from us, whether uh, the tornado comes and destroys our house, um, whether we lose our job, um, whether somebody hits our car and destroys our car. All those things that we think we, we really like and enjoy, they can be taken from us. People die in our lives. The one thing that cannot be taken from us is what the Lord gives to us. It is our faith in Him. It is our rest in Him. Because He comes and grabs a hold of us and keeps us in the palm of His hand. Everything other 
that our faith can be taken from us. The second thing that, that this teaches us is that God is sovereign. I know we've heard that before once or twice here, but God is sovereign. And so the way that we think about him and the way that we live out that has to be done in a certain way. So if God is sovereign, then we should live before him in humility. We should live before him in gratitude. These are the things that he, if he's in control of all things, and he has extended his love to us, we should be humble before him. He is sovereign over all things. So look at verse 7, the first portion of verse 7 there. That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God. So the works of God are listed over and over again. You begin in verse 9 and just go on through the rest of the chapter again and again and again and again. This is what God did. What did the people do? Oh, not so, not so smart of a thing. Okay? They went off on their own. So they show the works of deliverance from Egypt. They provided miraculously for it in, in the wilderness. Uh, they are kept there to remain God's people because he has uh, sovereignly protected them. And what do they do? They go off on their own. They go off on their own. This is a lesson to be learned. So the law is designed to put all our trials in perspective. The law is designed here to be instructed so that we understand this is the lesson to be learned. Do not follow the example of those who've gone before you in this capacity. The third one is that it should move us to obedience. Instruction in the law here should move us to obedience. They put their confidence in God, did not forget the works of God, kept his commands. That's the southern kingdom. Okay. Now, eventually they, they fell away, but for a much longer portion of time, they kept the Lord's commandments. When we realize the greatness of God and his works, we realize the power that he has, when we realize that he is trustworthy, that he keeps his promises, and the intention is for us to pass that on to all future, future generations, to remind them what he has done. This is what he did in my life. And it's not just my life, because my life can be okay, but it's not the perfect example. Here is the perfect example of what the Lord did. And how we show our gratitude to a God who does all these things? Obedience. We keep his commandments. Now, when we remember these things, uh, think about how you remember things in life. Uh, some people are scrapbookers. You know, they've got pages and pages of stuff they collected and and articles and pictures and things. Other people are, are like to trace out their genealogy so that they can look at their history and, and remember uh, or find out who they, they, they came from. Other, other of us, you know, we're, we're modern. We have an iPhone. And we got like, like 10 gigs on our iPhones of pictures. Okay? Now, I, I wonder what's going to happen in 20 years to those. Are they going to be gone? I never gave it a thought until recently. Are all, all the pictures that I have on my iPhone, are they going to be, what should I do with them? Uh, don't want to talk to Dan later. And, and, <laughs> but when you look at your scrapbook, when you look and see your genealogy, who you came from, when you look through your iPhone at the 10,000 pictures you have there, you're responsible 
and what it is that you're remembering. Now, listen to Spurgeon as he says. You're responsible for what you remember and for how you remember it. That you are bound to train and educate your memory, not merely in the sense of cultivating it as a means of carrying intellectual treasures, but to cultivate it for a religious purpose. So he says, all that you remember, all that you are, are looking at and called to remember has a religious purpose in your life. Let me continue. The one thing that all parts of our nature need is God. And that is as true about our power of remembrance as it is about any other part of our being. The past is then hallowed and noble and yields its highest result and most blessed fruits for us when we link it closely with him. What was going on in that picture? What was going on in this portion of your life? What was the Lord doing here? It's not just, man, didn't we have a great time and look at the little kids and the grandkids and, and everything, but what was the Lord doing there? As you remember those things, maybe you didn't even understand what was going on. But here you have a chance to reflect upon things from a distance away from it. What was the Lord doing there? The past is then hallowed, noble, yields its highest result, most blessed fruits for us when we link closely with him and see in it not only the play of our own faculties, as rather see in it the great field in which God has brought himself near to our experience. Here is the history of Randy, laid out in pictures, laid out in videos, VHS, remember VHS, and then all those types of things. What was the Lord doing here? Okay, oh, that's what he did. You know, I, I still have these like slides. Remember slides, okay? But and when I was working in Youth for Christ, slides were the big thing because we had the latest in technology in the 80s of slides. It was called a dissolver. Okay, so you had two projectors, and they would run into one thing, and you would dissolve a slide to the next slide. So it wasn't just like, chikum, chikum, you know, and, and you, we were doing really cool things with these dissolving slides and, 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 and stuff. I still, but they're made on this little film and you have to hold them up to the light to see. And, and I still have some of them. And I remember what went on in those pictures. Okay? And I remember what the Lord was doing in the midst of those times. And, and now I can see in a, in a, in a more broad picture what the Lord was accomplishing in my life in those slides. So the one thing which will consecrate dispersion again, the one thing which will consecrate memory, deliver it from its errors and abuses, raise it to its highest and noblest power, is that it should be in touch with God, and that the past should be regarded by each of us as it is indeed and in truth, one long record of what God has done with us. You think of those 10,000 pictures on your iPhone. What's the record of what God has been doing in your life? You think of your genealogy. What is the record that God has been doing in your family, in your ancestors? But, but you know, how often is it that we fail to see these things in our circumstances of life? We get so consumed with, with the moment and, and with our immediate trials or circumstances that we don't take time to reflect upon the bigger picture until we are away from it. We are obligated by those memories to learn what the Lord has done 
what the Lord has promised and therefore to apply what the Lord will continue to do because of who he is. Think of Job. We talked about Job last week and we just finished up the study on, on Wednesday about Job. And, and the last chapter is, is like a Disney princess movie. And they lived happily ever after. Okay. That's the way it works. And, and, but, but think, Job then had twice as many sheep, twice as many camels, twice as many yoke of oxen, uh, servants, everything. He had seven additional children after his children passed away. He had uh, three daughters, and they were the most beautiful girls in the land. Okay, And then he had seven sons. And he was so rich that he gave his daughters a share of an inheritance as well, which was just out of the ordinary. But how do you think, after all that Job has been through, that he, he lived 140 more years after his trial, he would look back in his trial in those years, how do you think he then lived after that? Uh, we came to the conclusion that Job was probably more compassionate and more generous and more caring and more patient because of what he had been through. I don't think, as he's sitting there in sackcloth and ashes, scraping the boils off of his body with a piece of broken pottery, that he was thinking, oh, this is really going to make me compassionate. At this point, I don't think it was on his mind. But after he's, he was able to look back upon what the Lord had done and remember then for his children and for his friends and those around him, I think his life was completely different. How he interacted with them was completely different. Spurgeon equates it this way. We have a sailor who gets on a ship and leaves the dock and goes away from his hometown. And he stands on the, by the rail of the ship and he looks back and he sees the beauty of the city before him. Because he can see all of it. When he was in the city, all he saw was his own street or his own house. And that's all he could fixate on. But now that he has stepped away from it, he sees this beauty that he didn't understand before. Our view of the past, our remembrance of what the Lord has done, if we can step away and see God's hand on it, we might not always like God's hand and what he was doing in it, but we can then see it and how he was working in it. Now it's much easier to understand at that point. Now, there are people for whom remembrance of the past just brings sorrow. There are people who, who can't seem to, to let go of things in their past. And whenever they want to look back there, they remember the times that they have hurt people, the times where people have hurt them. They focus on the times that they have failed. They focus on, on, on the negative things. And when they search their memories and, and remembrances, all they come up with is sorrow. And so they want to put the past behind them. They don't want to look at it. They don't want to deal with it at all. Maybe you look on your past and you think, I, I've tried so many times and I just failed here. And every time I, I reflect upon it, that's all that I can see. Spurgeon again reminds us, tomorrow need never be determined by the failures that have been. We may still conquer where we have often been defeated. There is no worse use of the power of remembrance than when we use it to bind upon ourselves the failures and faults of the past. Paul says what? Forget the things that are behind. Spurgeon says your old fragmentary goodnesses, your old 
foiled desires and aspirations, your frequent failures, cast them all behind you. Some of us, I'm sure, have a former or have our former evils holding tightly upon us when we look back, and our memory is defiled in that way. He says, Brethren, you may find a refuge from that curse of remembrance in remembering what the Lord was doing in your life at that time and how that has shaped you for what he calls you to do now. Again, Paul says, Brothers, I don't know, do not consider myself yet to have laid hold of it, but I do one thing. I press on. I've got somewhere to go. I've got a prize, the upward call of the things of Christ. I press on. I remember what God has done. Even in my failures, he has used me because he is sovereign. He is sovereign. So for all the memories that dwell upon our sin, for all of our memories of our proud successes, for all the memories that try to drag us down, the memories of our brokenheartedness and our losses, there is a remedy for each one of those. Is that we understand them in the context of what the Lord is doing to shape our lives and to form us and what His grace did to get us to where we are now so that we can move forward for what He has for us. So let's pray.